We did the Shaw Go Bikes today and went around downtown. Yeah. And there was protests for Cuba. I was oh, like, yeah. what the fuck is happening in Cuba? I had no idea. And then I came home and I looked. Yeah, there's a, uh, you're, it's going to be hard finding an actual neutral source on that. But yeah, there's protests in Cuba over shortages in certain things. Whether or not it's the government's fault is an interesting question. Cuba's yeah. actually done quite well for itself throughout COVID and the fact that there's a fairly significant embargo against it put by the US, the closest country to it. And they actually did develop their own vaccine to COVID. That's what I saw when I was looking because I was like, I feel like I should know what's going on in Cuba and I had no idea. So we could talk about that, but I don't know. Uh, Let's avoid the political ones for a while. Okay, then I have nothing. Okay. Other than Uh, Bigfoot cheese. I can add though, the part of the shortages that they're facing right now is Trump before he left office extended and created more things that are limited for what they can import in Cuba. One of those things are syringes. So they have a COVID vaccine, they have a shortage of syringes, so they can't actually get it into people. It was medicine too, that they were like, so there's this whole thing that I saw because tourism was down. Tourism is their number one thing. Tourism is a big thing there. Yeah, because of the source of the income, they would then import food. So those food shortages and the prices are skyrocketing. So they're rioting, or not rioting, they're protesting. Yeah. And a lot of people are protesting freedom against the one, the communist. The one government dictator. rule. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what I found out. Okay. Yeah. It, and it's a, it's a long running process. That last hit that Trump did to them was really significant right before he left office. But Biden hasn't reversed any of it. So we're still at that spot. Yeah. Uh, do you and- have anything? I do. But yeah, Cuba in the last over the last four years has had a GDP drop of about 70% due to those embargoes. Yike. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course, it's going to a small little island like that. Like, it's going to be so dependent on other countries. Prior to that, they had the ninth highest GDP in all of Latin America, which for a place that has had an embargo against it since the 1960s is pretty significant. Well, then I was reading the history of Cuba, and I had no idea that the history of it was because of Russia with yeah. what's his face Fidel Fidel Castro with Russia, and that's what was like yeah, the Cold Khrushchev. War. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no idea that that's the oh. thing. And then Russia was trading with them, and yeah. then Russia cut off ties with them, and so then like it just like went downhill yeah, from there. Yeah, the fact that they've still survived to this day is fairly impressive on their part but yeah before i had no idea about Castro, the history. it was batista that was in power i always remember that because it was a joke on the simpsons batista? yeah batista he was a very pro-american trade person there were a ton of casinos there there was a very impoverished lower class which fidel was able to rally and overthrow them do you remember the trillion- batista a wrestler uh yes doesn't he play he's in well what's the space movie with Groot. It's Marvel. Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, he's yeah. the guy with all the scars, isn't he? Oh, I don't know. But I always remember Batista was in power before Fidel because it's in the Trillion Dollar Bill episode of The Simpsons where they're flying over there. And Mr. Burns says, so you say Batista is gone. <laughs> I had no idea. And that'll happen. Like, it was high profile in the 60s. Yeah, well, that went right over my head. Okay. <laughs> I need to rewatch The Simpsons again. There's actually another good... The 50th time. Yeah. 
there's a good joke later on in that episode where Castro's thinking about like giving in to the Americans and he says, oh, they're not so bad. They named a district after me in San Francisco. And then somebody yeah. whispers into his ear and he says, it's full of what? I remember that That's one. a good quote. That one wasn't over my head. I could quote The Simpsons all day long. That's a good episode. I haven't seen it in so long. No, I need to read. You have my Disney, don't you? Yeah, I do. I'm going to rewatch it. has all it The Simpsons. Point. Yeah. Okay. But for starters, for this episode, there is an interesting article I was reading. Chelsea, are you aware of the moon? Mm, depends on which moon we're talking about. Our moon. Yes. Okay. Little. Okay. I'm not really familiar, but like. Okay. Well, you could go out tonight, look like up, friends. and you could become more yeah. familiar with it. Yeah. <laughs> I learned this the other day. I I like astronomy. It's a fun hobby. I did not know this. The moon actually has a wobble that impacts its orbit around the Earth. And kind that, of wobble. a wobble that just kind of moves around on its axis. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's on an 18.6 year cycle, this wobble. Apparently, it changes the moon's impact on our tides. Oh. And the reason I actually learned that yes, is because NASA just came out with a report that basically said we're going to be hitting significant coastal flooding coming in the 2030s because of this 18.6 year cycle. And the fact that our sea levels are rising, that is a fact. That I think most yeah. people will agree with that fact. Sea levels are rising, but it has been kind of hidden by the fact that we're at a point in the moon's wobble cycle where high tides are lower and low tides are higher. So it just seems like it's kind of staying the same. But once it gets into that point where the high tides are higher and low tides are lower, there's going to be some fairly significant flooding on most coastal regions of the planet. When does that come in our like it'll 2030s? Be, it'll be from here on to the 2030s. It's going to slowly start to increase. But once the 2030s hits, it's going to kind of hit its apex. Like, it's yeah. actually like not that I keep forgetting it's 2021. That's like nine yeah. years away. Nine years. Less than nine years. Yeah. That's once we hit the full of it because it's going to consistently get worse and worse during the cycle. Yeah. The entire report, I would suggest going reading it. It was put out by NASA. It's recently? Yeah. It came out this week. Basically saying that there are going to be parts of the world where this flooding makes it so that parts are uninhabitable for months on end. Where? I didn't read the whole thing. It is only six pages, <laughs> but it is a heavy read. So I have only read the articles about it. Fair enough. Thank you for not making that information up, I guess. <laughs> yes. All of it. <laughs> but with that, I suggest moving to a part of the world that is not prone to being taken over by the sea. But there's there's lots of other problems everywhere. So just make with it what you will. Maybe a raft. Yeah, I should start making one of those. Yeah. yeah, you guys are high enough. But with that out of the way, should we get started on this episode? Yes, we should. Okay. Enough of this. Let's go to that. Okay. From the unexplained to the mundane, why don't you come join us on our journey to the fringe? Welcome to Journey to the Fringe, your place you come for the facts and just the facts. Also some fun. Yeah, both of those. Hi, I'm Taylor. I'm Chelsea. And together we are your hosts on this journey to the fringe. Here we go. Now, I haven't seen this handled on a podcast before, so I'm actually quite excited to cover this topic. It's a bit of a strange one, but it is a question, me being at least a non-practicing lawyer at this time, has always kind of wandered around my mind. Mm. If you have a haunted house, are you required to tell someone before you sell the house? Fairly simple question, probably one most people don't think about when they talk about haunted houses, but 
there is actual case law on this topic. There is a very famous case out of New York. There's one out of Canada. Clearly, do not come here for our legal advice. Come here for the witty banter and to maybe Especially learn a mine. little bit. But again, we say it every time we do this. If you have an issue with regards to this specific matter, talk to a lawyer. Give them your money. Figure that issue out. I don't really know where this is going other than my contribution to it. Okay. Well, Chelsea, how about you get started on your contribution to it then? So my contribution, I are you in the our research there? Yes. So first off, I had to include a sketch, a portrait of the spooky house in question. Oh, was it <laughs> done by the Warrens? It was not. Actually, ah. this was another spooky house artist. No, I wish. I'll post that on the social media. Just background on the house that we're talking about. It's a large red Victorian, now blue, in fact for you, home on the waterfront in Nyack, New York. Is that how you say it? Nyack? I, I thought it was Nyack, but I did not look that Nyack? up. <laughs> yeah, neither did I. I mean, I'm doing my best knowing English as I do. <laughs> Nyack, New York, which was number one Lavetta place, which is approximately 20 miles north of New York City on the west bank of the Hudson River. Nyack, according to some, is the most haunted county in New York State, attributed by the upheaval of the region where indigenous populations with thousands of years of population were displaced by waves of Dutch and British settlers and the military campaigns and practice of African slavery, which was conducted there. I don't know that I call it a practice or why I said that in there. I can't so, confirm. It is it is Nyack. Nyack. Okay, I did it right. No English. <laughs> Built in 1890 with five bedrooms, 3.5 bathrooms, adding up to about 5,000 square feet. It has three floors plus basement and an attic. And I can confirm that it's real spooky looking. If I were to see it on the street, I'd be like, it's probably haunted. Then it's really I draw, got that Amityville horror kind of feel to it. Yeah, then I draw a picture of it and I take it up to them. And, and I would like, sneak in the back. This is, this is your haunted house. And then Taylor would go around the back. And then that would be it. We'd be it. We don't know what we're doing after that. <laughs> yeah, that's it. The Ackleys had purchased the house in the early 1960s where they lived with their two kids and then eventually their grandchildren. They were there for quite a while. And the house had been sitting vacant and in disrepair for some time prior to the Ackleys moving in, once being used as a single family residence and then later a boarding house. And then it sat vacant for some time prior to them moving in. And as far as I could find, there is only one death in the house, recorded death. However, it was when the Ackleys were living in the house when a young, otherwise healthy dinner guest died of a brain aneurysm. So that's kind of the history of the house. What is going on in the house, you ask? What are these hauntedness that we are speaking of? It was said when the Ackleys moved in that local children warned the Ackleys that their house was haunted. But... I know kids, and what do they know, right? <laughs> Helen Ackley claimed that there was at least three ghosts, which I'll get into coming up, that were inhabiting the residence. She described two as a couple who lived in the 18th century and one other one as a Navy lieutenant in the American Revolution. Bill Merrill, a paranormal researcher, along with his go-to guy, the medium Glenn Johnson, contacted the Ackleys in 1993 because that's what they do. You don't go to them, they come to you. And this time there's no paintings involved. 
I mean, it just makes it easier to get in with a painting, but whatever, to each their own. And they claim to have already made contact with the spirits prior to them even contacting the Ackleys. So I'm just going to go ahead and say that for me, that would be a little bit of a red flag, but not for Helen, the lead Ackley. So it continues and they meet with Helen and let them know that there are poltergeists of Sir George and Lady Margaret who live in the region, not the house in the 18th century. And if you know anything about ghosts, which you should from our last episode, this, I wouldn't consider this a poltergeist at all if they're naming names. Poltergeists are a different thing, but that's, that's fine. I'm just, you know, saying. These two dudes go on to publish a book about their findings with Sir George and Lady Margaret and the Lieutenant. I don't know. I just, paranormal investigators are so weird so far. And maybe it's just the Warrens and then these guys come in like saying they know things about these ghosts before they even go in there but it's just kind of coming a trend to me but i'm sure there are many out there that are decent people yeah do you know any not off the top of my head no no i don't so i'm not bad mouthing them i'm sure they're great Um, we don't know them firsthand so that's no we don't all we know is the warrens and these guys who are just out contacting people again which i mean i guess as a paranormal investigator you would maybe Well, how are you going to find out about the new cases? Yeah. Yeah, I guess you kind of have to, actually. Now that I'm really thinking about it and putting myself in the shoes of a paranormal investigator, I would go to the haunted houses. Okay. I explored that a little further there. That's good. Um, Yeah. Yeah. That was for me. There are some sightings in the house. So Helen claimed to have seen George Sr., which was one of the couple, the two of them. Quote, sitting in midair, watching me paint the ceiling in the living room, rocking back and forth. I was on an eight-foot stepladder. I asked if he approved of what we were doing to the house, if the colors were to his liking. Smiled and nodded his head yes, unquote. One of the Ackley's daughters, Cynthia, would reportedly be woken up most mornings by one of the spirits shaking her bed. One morning, she proclaimed to the ghost during spring break that it was spring break and she wanted to sleep in and the ghost did not wake her up for spring break. And so that was nice of the ghosts. Helen also reported phantom footsteps and slamming doors in the house. They would also report hearing conversation coming from rooms that were next to them with nobody being in the room. Random trinkets would be found such as rings, coins, even sugar tongs that would later vanish. And there are also claims that the Ackley's son came, quote, eyeball to eyeball, unquote, with the Navy lieutenant, which I mean... Like, (laughs) eyeball to eyeball is super close. I don't think that I've even come that close to most people or anyone ever. It's a little disturbing. Mark Cavanaugh, who came later, he was engaged to the daughter, Cynthia. While living at the house, he reported conversations from an empty room. He also recounted another encounter where, quote, Cynthia was asleep and I was drifting off. Then I heard the bedroom door creak and the floorboards squeak. My back was to the edge of the bed. Suddenly, the edge of my bed by my midsection depressed down and I felt something lean against me. I went literally stone stiff. I was speechless and could hardly move. I was able to twist my neck around enough to see a womanly figure in a soft dress through the moonlight from the bay windows. I finally relaxed enough to shake my wife out of a sound sleep, acting like a toddler who had just 
just had a nightmare, unquote. I mean, that happens to the best of us when we're scared. They also say everything was pretty much a peaceful coexistence with the ghost. They never really had any scary encounters other than the one that I just read to you. However, he does say that he thinks the ghosts were like family to them and just testing out if they like would accept him is how he kind of explained it. Since the Ackley's moving in 1989, the next donors have not reported any activity. However, they do say they wanted nothing to do with it. Merrill and Johnson, who if you remember from two minutes ago, were the paranormal investigators, say that the ghosts of Sir George and Lady Margaret were not as fond of the new owners and were thinking of moving on. I'm just thinking of me as a ghost, and if it were me, I would have amped up the haunting if I didn't like someone. Oh, you would have done it Beetlejuice style then. Yeah. Oh, probably. I would totally be a Beetlejuice ghost. Yeah, I can confirm that right now. Yeah, I would. But to each ghost their own, I guess. They may have also left because after the judgment, which we're going to get into, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but it relates to the ghost side of the story. So after the judgment against Helen, she stated she's moving and taking the ghost with her. And after the death of the young woman in the home, which I put earlier, she had a brain aneurysm and she was otherwise healthy. The house kind of picked up and it had already had this kind of like creepiness factor in the neighborhood. The kids warned them moving in that it was haunted, which kids talk. And it kind of picked up from there. And the story started getting some steam around town. And the house became a stop of a tour of haunted properties in the area. So these are well-known things. It's renowned in the community. It became a stop on like a ghost tour. And Helen Ackley submitted her accounts of the hauntings from the house to Reader's Digest in a May 1977 edition. So they're recounted in there. And then the fiance of the daughter, Mark Cavanaugh, actually goes on talking about his experiences in the house as well. So that's kind of me setting the stage for where the story's going. I think yeah. I did it. No, that's that's really for you good. To go from yeah. there. And this is about the time where a family by the name of the Stambovskis come in. Now they're from New York City. They're thinking of moving out to one of the suburbs. And they know nothing about Nyack. That becomes very clear as the story goes on. They see this lovely house that is owned by the Ackleys. And they agree to purchase this house for $650,000. I, I thought that was a little pricey for that time. But I don't know what real estate was. I was just going to say. I, I feel like that would be a little bit pricey for, yeah, for a time in yeah. a suburb. But I don't know yeah. for sure. It, it doesn't seem like there were a lot of conditions on this. They put down $32,500. And then the sale was going to be closed for total of $650,000. After everything is signed, this gets a little murky in the before times about how much the Stambovskis actually knew about the haunting prior to signing the contract. But a week after they signed the contract, Stambovsky requested an in-person meeting to talk about the ghosts with Mrs. Ackley. And Mrs. Ackley passionately told stories of the hauntings. And at that point, the Stambovskis said they want nothing to do with this house. They're backing out of the contract. But as it stood, because they'd already put their down payment down, they had to walk away from the $32,500. 
And what the lawsuit ends up being is them suing, the Stambovskis are suing the Ackleys for that down payment back because they did not disclose pertinent information about the house that either changes the value of the house or is something material that would force them to not buy it in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. Yes. Kind of a he said, she said, it seems like. Kind of, yes. And gets a little bit into it. A lot of the, there's a few legal terms that you need to know going into this first one is caveat and poor which is basically buyer beware it's your job to look into the product you're buying to an extent for the purposes that you're buying it for so you need to be asking the questions and in real estate contracts they basically have an as is clause which basically saying you're buying this house as is and everything in this contract forms the contract so it's up to you to ask the questions that change the rules within okay covers it i think yeah and at the the episode yeah there you go (laughs) and in the uh, new york supreme court the court finds pretty clear no if that was something that you were worried about you should have asked a question about it buyer beware oh good point you're out that thirty two thousand five hundred dollars on that point it does seem as though after he puts that deposit down that he then does ask the question yeah and i think part of it was you know how she was on that like ghost tour he yeah. found out about the ghost tour after that point or the ghost tour started after that point i'm not I sure figured, i figured it was important because i believe the ghost tour started prior to them buying the house yeah selling. yeah prior to them selling which i figured was a very important term to put into my side of the story but i didn't yeah. go further no that's I wanted, perfect i wanted some surprise on the end of my story <laughs> and by the way the entire time this is happening it's kind of hilarious because this lawsuit brings a ton of attention to this house it's now worth more money than it was before so they backed out of the house oh. and the actually can actually sell this house for more money and if you go on the wikipedia article about this they do talk a bit about the interested parties once this lawsuit gets going and people are like oh this is a famous haunted house now i must buy it yeah it does do that doesn't it so they're keeping that thirty two thousand five hundred. they're also selling the house again because he backed out of the contract they need to find a buyer they get more money out of all of this going on they could have just returned the deposit but you don't have to return the deposit yeah well, exactly and the supreme Principles. court Yeah, the New York Supreme Court said that you don't. The Stambovskis appealed that. And this is known as the Ghostbusters ruling. It is Stambovsky v. Ackley, 169 AD, New York Appeal Division. If you actually want to read like legal writing at its best, I think the majority writing here did a fantastic job and had fun with this writing. So we're going to go through this ruling because it is fantastic. Okay, good. The ruling is three judges to two in favor of Stambovsky. So they find at the end of the day that there was something fundamentally different about this that the buyer shouldn't have to uh, worry about. Therefore, he should get his deposit back. We're going to go through this. Just it's good to know up front what's going on. Yeah, like he wouldn't have had to ask about it. Like no buyer beware on a haunted house. Yes. Should have been disclosed. Yes. Okay. And uh, the majority opinion is written by a Ruben J. There is a dissenting opinion. We'll get into it a bit. That is written by, and sorry, I just need to grab his name really quick, a Smith J. 
And uh, again, three to two. So a few notable parts of this opinion. Not being a local, plaintiff could not readily learn that the home he had contracted to purchase is haunted. Whether the source of the spectral apparitions seen by defendant sellers are parapsychic or psychogenic, having reported their presence in both a national publication and the local press, defendant is a stopped to deny their existence. And as a matter of law, the house is haunted. I really love that. The fact that she told people that it was haunted these judges are just saying the house is haunted for all purposes that we're looking at it because she is stating in a publication it is that yeah. means to the law it is yeah more to the point however no divination is required to conclude that it is defendant's promotional efforts in publicizing her close encounters with these spirits which fostered the home's reputation in the community the impact of the reputation thus created goes to the very essence of the bargain between the parties greatly impairing both the value of the property and its potential for resale applying the strict rule of caveat and poor the buyer beware wow. to a contract involving a house possessed by poltergeists conjures wow. up visions of a psychic or medium routinely wow. accompanying the structural engineers and terminus man on an inspection of every home subject to a contract of sale. <laughs> it portends that the prudent attorney will establish an escrow account, lest the subject of the transaction come back to haunt him and his client. <laughs> what? He yeah. put that in there? Yeah. Not or pray, oh, I or like pray that. that his malpractice insurance coverage extends to supernatural disasters. In the interest <laughs> right, of... this guy yeah, is great. It's really good writing. In the interest it of avoiding is. such <laughs> untenable consequences, the notion that a haunting is a condition which can and should be ascertained upon the reasonable inspection of the premises is a hobgoblin which should be exercised from the body <laughs> of legal precedent and lay quietly to rest. <laughs> Are normal law papers written like this? Some of them are. <laughs> that is like some, that's one of the finest pieces of literature I've ever been read. It, it keeps going on. That is the funnest paragraph, but he still does have fun with it. So caveat and poor is not so all encompassing a doctrine of common law as to render every act of non-disclosure immune from redress, whether legal or equitable. In regards to the necessity of giving information which has been asked, the rule differs somewhat at law and in equity. And while the law courts would permit no recovery of damages against a vendor because of mere concealment of facts under certain circumstances, yet if the vendee refused to complete the contract because of the concealment of a material fact on the part of the other, equity would refuse to compel him to do so because equity only compels the specific performance of a contract which is fair and open and in regard to which all material matters known to each have been communicated to the other. Can I just put in a little comment here? You said it a little bit back, but I didn't want to interrupt that like yeah, masterpiece ahead. of writing. Obviously, this wouldn't have been brought to trial right away. Or would well, it have? Yeah, it would have been. You have a uh, okay. statute of limitations. I don't know what it is in New York, but there's a time period that you have to bring it within. Okay. And especially they're looking for a house. I'm guessing they really wanted that 32 grand back fast. Yeah, so I'm guessing yeah. they would okay. have done quick. Okay. Just because, I mean, it was stated in there multiple times that it would damage the value of the property yeah. and it actually ended up adding value to their property. Yeah, at the end of the day, it did. And I find it that hilarious. And it's an argument in here 
for a point towards them getting the deposit back. Yes. I mean, it's like a, this I is mean, something it I want them negatively a couple ways. Yeah, it could have affected them negatively. It could have, I, like, yeah. literally, you look at the facts, and you could, you would say, yeah. yes, this, this is something words and stuff yeah. going past. Like, I do want to touch on that at the very end of this part, just because I do think it's something that is weak about this legal writing that I think they just avoided it because they didn't want to worry about it. But we'll talk yeah. about it. So they say in this instance, the appellant has met his obligation to conduct an inspection of the premises and a search of available public records with respect to title. It should be apparent, however, that the most meticulous inspection and the search would not reveal the presence of poltergeist or unearth the property's ghoulish reputation in the community. Therefore, there is no sound policy reason to deny plaintiff relief for failing to discover a state of affairs which most prudent purchasers would not be expected to even contemplate. That's kind of true. True. You can ask a neighbor what the neighborhood's like. You can. Or, you know, look in the newspaper. Well, that's, I mean, this was a very long time ago. I mean, this now is the you 90s. can do. I know, and I was thinking that because yeah. now you can do virtual tours and literally buy something not having yeah. seen it anywhere, but that wouldn't have been a thing unless you're like looking at some sort of ad or something and you're like, I think I'm going to do it. I'm going to move to Nyack and this looks fine. Yeah, but yeah, it's, I don't know. That's part of the thing I don't really like is they're saying it seems so ridiculous to make, hold somebody to that standard. But at the same time, like you can ask a neighbor, like what's the house like? What's the neighborhood like? And this is kind of the big takeaway paragraph here. Where a condition which has been created by the seller materially impairs the value of the contract and is peculiarly within the knowledge of the seller or unlikely to be discovered by a prudent purchaser exercising due care with respect to the subject transaction, non-disclosure constitutes a basis for rescission as a matter of equity. Any other outcome places upon the buyer not merely the obligation to exercise care in this purchase, but rather to be omniscient with respect to any fact which may affect the bargain. No practical purpose is served by imposing such a burden upon a purchaser. To the contrary, it encourages predatory business practice and offends the principle that equity will suffer no wrong to be without a remedy. So yeah, I think that's pretty straightforward. If it's something that's so unique that only first off, they're saying that the seller brought about the status that's there because she's the one who's brought it into the public light. That's where they're saying the actual value was lost is in the reputation. Yeah. They're really trying to avoid the idea that an actual haunted house could harm you. Whereas they're focusing more on the world at large. So that I mean, that's to be expected, I guess. And in situations like this, where it's something that is first off brought about by the seller, but also not something that would normally be asked, like another comparable would be like if the seller had taken like a hose to the their basement and just hit it in a wall and open it up for a week straight. That would be something that they did to the home. But that's something that you likely would ask, like, wouldn't ask. Well, no, you would probably ask that. How's the foundation? And if you didn't disclose at that point, that would be a dishonest answer or something along those lines. I mean, if you're opening up to, you have to ask about hauntings. I mean, then you have to ask about Bigfoots. Yeah. You have to ask about aliens. Yeah. Yeah. Like all of this. And yeah, my three year old has been abducted by aliens every Thursday night since she was born. Something like that. And then you get into bloodlines, you get into like, is this gonna like continue to happen to me? Is it the house? So that's but yeah, my digression. She I'm gonna say just from my little thing that I did, she did go out of her way to seek publication. Yeah. To get this 
yeah, and they're not the they're not actually talking about like the damages those things could do. These are all like reputational issues that they're dealing with. It is. And haunted or not, let's just say it's not haunted. Yeah. She very well could have done all of this on her own as well, yeah. just making it all up and going to publications and talking up a reputation that it already had within the community. And then yeah. it is brought upon by the seller. What they're really doing with this decision, too, is saying that if we don't put a border somewhere where you don't have to ask questions anymore, you literally will have such a wide array of questions that you would have to ask. Yeah. You'd never be able to buy a house and you yeah. wouldn't be able to afford all the experts you need to come in to look at the house. Yeah. <laughs> And you'd need, oh my God, paranormal investigators would House love inspectors. that. Yes. <laughs> they would not even have to approach anybody anymore. We, we, we would have to approach them and be like, I yeah. need my house inspected. Against Bigfoots, aliens, gnomes. I don't know if gnomes are a thing. The list goes on. They, they are in South America. They come up in South America for sure. Gnomes? Yeah. Oh, that is terrifying. I've never yeah. heard of that. Okay, now... <laughs> He addresses the defenses that the Ackleys use. The Ackleys were relying on the as-is clause. And there says, any other matter on things affecting or relating to the aforementioned premises are purchased as-is. Okay, yeah, I get and that. they continue on this paragraph. As broad as this language may be, a reasonable interpretation is that its effect is limited to tangible or physical matters and does not extend to paranormal phenomena. Finally, if language of the contract is to be construed as broadly as the defendant urges to encompass the presence of poltergeist in the house, it cannot be said that she has delivered the premise vacant in accordance with her obligations under the provisions of the contract rider. I really like that. That is hilarious. <laughs> True. It's not vacated. And then finishes it off. With there, a, oh, a this is shit. He has a really good. He has a really good defense. Yeah. The seller not They're only takes unfair advantage of the buyer's ignorance, but has created and perpetuated a condition about which he is unlikely to even inquire. Enforcement of the contract, in whole in part, is offensive to the court's sense of equity. Application of the remedy of rescission within the bounds of the narrow exceptions to the doctrine of caveat impor sets forth herein is entirely appropriate to relieve the unwitting purchaser from the consequences of a most unnatural bargain. Okay, what does that mean in English? What's that? That whole sentence. Basically, they're saying that it is that whole thing, because caveat and poor buyer beware, is it's a fairly I solid did remember um, that. rule of law. And you need fairly significant and unique situations. You need to meet the threshold to have buyer beware no longer take place. And he's saying that the remedy for buyer beware is rescission. You can walk away from the contract and you don't have to leave your deposit there. So it is a high standard. That's what he's asking for. That's the remedy, the equity. And because... Oh, he this is such a unique case and she fully brought on the damage that he believes is yeah. there, then this is a case where caveat and poor does not apply and you get your money back. Okay. Oh, and he finishes it off with the, uh, is entirely appropriate to relieve the unwitting purchaser from the consequences of a most unnatural bargain, which is just, unnatural. it's a good send off. Was a deal with the devil. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's, on, I left out quite a few paragraphs. If you're looking for a fun legal read, this is quite good. It was fun. So how does it end? That is how it ends. Now, there is a dissenting opinion. I this is Does he get his deposit back? He gets or does the he deposit not? back, yes. And gets then it the Ackleys okay. end up selling it for significantly more. So that's the judgment of the three judges um, written by Ruben. And Smith, joined by one other dissenting judge, also wrote an opinion. And this is what it says. It is settled law in New York State that the seller of real property is under no duty 
to speak when the parties deal at arm's length. The mere silence of the seller without some act or conduct which deceived the purchaser does not amount to a concealment that is actionable as fraud. The buyer has the duty to satisfy himself as to the quality of his bargain pursuant to the doctrine of caveat and poor, which in New York State still applies to real estate transactions. There is no allegation that defendants by some specific act other than the failure to speak deceived the plaintiff. Nevertheless, a cause of action may be sufficiently stated where there is a confidential or fiduciary relationship creating a duty to disclose and there was a failure to disclose a material fact calculated to induce false belief. Basically what they're saying is if you're in a unique relationship, sometimes there is a higher level of you're held to a higher level than buyer beware if you're selling something, but that's in the place of confidential or fiduciary relationships. Fiduciaries being like lawyer client privileges. They're ones where you're not just acting in a moneyed interest. Does that mean like that the house had such a status? No, what they're saying right now is he's holding a strict view of caveat and poor. He's saying, look, we have, and let me finish this up because I think it will get explained better. I think he sums it up really nicely at the end. However, plaintiff herein has not alleged and there is no basis for conducting that a confidential or fiduciary relationship existed between these parties to an arm's length transaction, such as to give rise to a duty to disclose. In addition, there is no allegation that defendants thwarted plaintiff efforts to fulfill his responsibilities fixed by the doctrine of caveat and poor. Finally, if the doctrine of caveat and poor is to be discarded, it should be for a reason more substantive than a poltergeist. The existence of a poltergeist is no more binding upon the defendant than it is upon this court. So he's just saying this thing is a high standard. You're throwing it out because somebody said it's spooky. So he just thinks it's a really dumb case and you're all dumb for giving this guy don't think it is. What if you really just don't? I wouldn't want to move into a house if I later found out that like there is witchcraft. Oh, I need to add that to my list of things to ask. It's so damaging to your buying of a house. Add it to the list. It is. Like if witchcraft was practiced there and I found out later, like after I put the deposit down, I was like, hold on. You need to have an in-person meeting and talk about if witchcraft was practiced here. And they're like, yeah, it's on a witchcraft walking tour. I would be like, oh, I'm taking you to court. I want my deposit back. It really doesn't sound like that's what happened here, though. It kind of sounds like this guy was told, like, this this house is haunted or something like that. And he's like, yeah, yeah. And then he actually talked to the owners afterwards. And he's like, oh, shit, it actually is haunted. Yeah, which he didn't like. I don't think he even moved in. But anyhow, but anyways, you're you're probably not bound by that ruling, depending on where you live. But if you're selling your haunted house that you advertised in media publications or on YouTube or anywhere else that it was haunted, you might have a duty to disclose to the seller that the property is haunted. If you didn't? If you didn't, that might be our next case here. Okay. So this is a bit of a mouthful. That last one, the US I couldn't find has a good free like database for cases to search. I just found it on Google Scholar. That was the best spot for it. The next one's out of the appeal court, or sorry, not the appeal court, the Superior Court of Ontario. It's from 2013, and it is a case by the name of 1784773 Ontario Incorporated versus KW Labor Association at all. It is about the haunting of a commercial real estate. And I, th- I love this the names of these yeah. cases. They're so creative. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> so... The numbered company, which I'm going to refer to that first one as now, bought a real estate 
from KW Labor. That's where the story starts off. I think this case speaks for itself pretty quickly. It's really short to read and the judges are just not having any of it. It's kind of fantastic. In September of 2010, the plaintiff purchased a commercial property in Kitchener, Ontario from the defendant. On December 28th, 2010, an article appeared in the local Kitchener newspaper. Mr. Kramer, a director of the defendant, was quoted as saying the following about the subject property to the newspaper reporter. And it's haunted, quote unquote. Quote, I have heard this from a couple of people on the third floor. There is an office up there and they said some days you see somebody moving around inside of there and there is nobody there. And we used to make jokes that Jimmy Hoffa was in the basement. It's a labyrinth in there. End quote. Based solely on this article, an action was commenced against the defendant on the basis that there was a latent defect in the subject property that the defendant knew about and essentially concealed from or failed to disclose to the plaintiff. The statement of claims states over and over again that the defect is the existence of a death and or murder at the subject property. <laughs> For the purposes of this hearing, I love this sentence because this is a guy who knows this is the dumbest court case ever for the purposes of this hearing i have been advised by the solicitor for the defendant that i can read into the statement of claims that there is an allegation that there are ghosts in the building from an article that they read about the building no so they filed their lawsuit yeah. and in their filing their allegations are that there was death and or murder at the subject property when okay. they never said that at all and they say for the purposes of just getting this over with, the guy who sold it actually said, sure, add ghosts to it. I don't care. <laughs> so I'll read that again. For the purposes of this hearing, I have been advised by the solicitor for the defendant that I can read into the statement of claim that there is an allegation that there are ghosts in the building. In Mr. Kramer's affidavit, that's the guy who sold. And in his cross-examination, he makes it clear that he has never seen a ghost did not believe there was a ghost, and that all conversations about the property being haunted were a joke and were not serious. At page 18 of Mr. Kramer's cross-examination, he makes it clear that he did not think the people who told him the property was haunted believed that it was. In response to question 91, they were just joking with you, quote-unquote. He replied, quote, oh yeah, they're both, it was at a social function kind of thing, had a few beers and talking about the ghosts up the stairs. Ha ha ha, that sort of thing, end quote. But that doesn't mean they were made up. No, it doesn't. But that's like, I just love the fact that it's just like, the judges don't caring. I have reviewed articles submitted by the plaintiff's counsel from a few different places. While these articles suggest that a stigma may include a property that is haunted, they don't opine on how this would have been proven. They fall well short of being anything approaching authoritative. In essence, what we have here is a double hearsay rumor about a ghost from a couple of people after they had consumed a few beers at a social function. There is no proof or even suggestion that a death took place in the building. There is no suggestion that the building is unfit for habitation as a commercial building, the purpose for which it was purchased in the first place. There is no suggestion that the purchasers intended to use the building for anything other than commercial purposes. In this case, at paragraph 26 of the agreement for purchase and sale, it reads in part as follows, this agreement, including any schedule attached here to, shall constitute the entire agreement between the buyers and sellers. There is no representation warranty collateral agreement or condition which affects this agreement other than those expressed herein. 
That's an entire agreement clause. Everything that we've agreed to is in this contract. There is no evidence before me as to how the plaintiff would prove the existence of a ghost. I just love that. That's a paragraph in itself. He just made that one line of paragraph. He then goes on to say a latent defect of quality going to fitness for habitation and which is either unknown to the vendor or such as does not make him chargeable with concealment or reckless disregard of its truth or falsity will not support any claims of redress by the purchaser. This all comes from a case I found very interesting. He cites it as his reasoning why this isn't something that is a latent defect. And it was a seller whose son had committed suicide in the house 10 years prior to selling it. And he never told the purchasers that. And they said that's not a latent defect. So you can't take back the sale. It's it's very different than the last case that we just listened to. Yeah. The other one had no deaths in it. The other guy just like fought tooth and nail. And this one, yeah. It's uh, this one. It's just like it clearly went to before a judge that just like was not having it. And the other yeah. one had a very good attorney. This is what hilarious. Went to the end of the world. Yeah. In that suicide one, the judge also says, in any event, the vendor is not liable for damages for a latent defect for which he has knowledge unless it renders the premises unfit for habitation or dangerous. So that's the standard they're holding here. And for the reasons given above, I grant the defendant summary judgment dismissing the plaintiff's claim pursuant to this rule, since I find that there is no genuine issue requiring a trial with respect to the claim. So this isn't even a full court hearing. The litigation was strictly done from one side. Basically, the guy who bought it said his claim. And then the seller said, no, this is dumb. Let's go to a summary trial. And the judge agreed. He said, nothing else has to be heard. This is stupid. Go away. Yeah, I can tell No that. defense was heard. He doesn't want to hear it at all. And then this guy goes and appeals the judgment. Of a judge? Yeah, he, he files with the Ontario. No, the plaintiff. The plaintiff filed a appeal. And he says, I don't agree with the court's ruling. I want to appeal it. And the entire appeal is two paragraphs. Counsel acknowledges that there is no direct evidence of economic loss or damage as a result of the stigma of a haunted property, nor is there any direct evidence from anyone who observes any strange occurrences in the property. In those circumstances, we see no error in the motion judge's conclusion that the case is a proper one for dismissal on a summary judgment. And then... The court says they're dismissing it with costs and he had to pay $6,264.44 plus HST for the defense of the seller. Canada was not having any of it. I just love how Maybe different it's just these the two judge. cases are. And they yeah. are two completely different hauntings because there's really no haunting. There is a small write-up in the local paper about this guy saying that, oh yeah, it might be haunted yeah. versus a and prolonged versus history of it. Not a prolonged history of a haunting. It was just a lady talking about it. I don't yeah. know that there's any actual evidence of an actual haunting or if he got in there, if it would have actually been haunted. Yeah, exactly. What can we draw from this? Depending on where you live, maybe a lot of things, maybe not. But if you're in New York and you're selling your haunted house, if you told people about it or if it's online that it's haunted, you may have to tell people about it. If you're in Canada and you're just offhandedly told that your house might be haunted by people at a bar, probably don't have to disclose it. But again, talk to your lawyers or look out for law blogs around Halloween because lawyers like to make joking little blogs about this around this time is yeah i'm sure we'll i'll be looking out for that of course. <laughs> <laughs> any questions Chelsea? 
Yeah, in Canada, you don't have to disclose if it's a haunted house. As that case says, so it, that's not binding on everybody in Canada. The Ontario appeal courts, yes, is fairly powerful because Ontario is a very big province. Yeah. But that wouldn't be binding on anybody here in BC. It would more so just be that if you're looking to sell your haunted house and you didn't tell anybody about it and they sued you, you would look to this case to say, look, this has been tried in Ontario and they found it stupid and should go away. Yeah, but that I guess it's not the rule. I don't know how law works. And yeah, it's... Um, no, it works on previous cases. Had it gone to the Supreme Court, yes, you could say that this is binding across Canada, but it clearly didn't. Really? Crazy. In the United States, there are states, not Each other state, states, where yeah. you have to. But is it only if there's publications about it being haunted or if it's actually haunted? I guess you could argue that depending on the state. Yes, but... It's truly going to be a unique situation where you find out after paying the deposit and removing conditions, but before moving in and purchasing the house where you discover that it's haunted. It is going to be truly unique cases. I don't know how they would remedy it if you had moved in and the same situation had occurred. Yeah, I guess they don't have court cases. That These would be are pretty Amityville, rare. but okay, okay, okay. But that would be Amityville, and nobody actually took anybody to court in Amityville because yeah, exactly. they moved in and it was heavily haunted. Apparently, they left within 28 days and nothing yeah. ever came of that. But that would have been, I don't know how they purchased it. It might have been a foreclosure from the bank, and you're buying it as is as well. Uh, I mean, that's the same thing, though. Um, and I, it said I, there's a clause in it when we were talking about it earlier that it was yeah, as is. Yeah, exactly. And What's that really depends from the bank yeah. to like an individual. And I guess we can talk about that in that situation let's say ackley or a bank ackley knew about the haunting she told people about the haunting she advertised the haunting a bank wouldn't know about the haunting because they were never in the house yeah so it's all about kind of whether True, or not it's truly it. as is yeah i'm just thinking what if or whether I bought, it's something like, that wasn't disclosed what if i'm just thinking about myself right now what if I like put my life savings into this house. I move in. I forget to ask if it's haunted or if witchcraft has been practiced there and it never comes up and I move in. First night, I like go to bed and I wake up and all the cabinet doors are open when I wake up in the morning. All the spoons are bent. I'm thinking like buyer's regret here. Like yeah. I bought a poltergeist. Nobody told me about this. I'm going to sue the shit out of these guys. Like at what point do you prove like, and that's I don't be think really that's ever been happened. No, because in that situation, that wouldn't be about the reputation of your property. That would be about like actual your belongings within it that have been damaged mental and I didn't even think of that mental and psychological damage because yeah, I've been crazy. That. Yeah. PTSD. But, but none of that was decided in either of these cases. Uh, no. The first one focused on the reputation and the other one said that it needed to be something that is so damaging to the house that it would make it unlivable. And then That's you would have to, to me. No, and that would be an argument you would have to make before a court, but then we would really have to get into the issue of is this a real thing, which yeah. I don't know if the court's prepared to make a decision on, but you know, we can probably bring on a litigator at some point. I to talk about this i know a lot of them do we know a good one that would specialize in well we want someone Ghost like Bob. the guy who wrote that that oh we want ruben we yeah, gotta we find him. ruben maybe we'll take him in the social media for this <laughs> but at that point like i i'm having like i want out like this was a mistake i don't yeah. like this at that point my best either um, and then it's did it come with you 
Yeah. Or was it there prior? And how yeah. do you prove that? Exactly. My best advice in that situation is tell no one about it and then sell the house. Or tell every. No, don't tell everyone. Right. Just sell the house. <laughs> You're right. Or tell everyone, make it famous. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, sorry. Tell everyone, sell the house, have them back out, get media attention on it, increase the value of the house, and then sell it again. Okay, tell no one or tell everyone. Like, it has to be everyone. Yes, yeah. Everyone. Yeah, you can't tell two people. That's a dumb way to go. (laughs) That's that's good advice. Not legal advice. Those are just spiritual advice. This is just journey to the fringe, like friendly banter advice. If I was ever to come into this situation, kind of... Please don't ever cite us in your lawsuit. Yeah, don't Yeah, ever find you. <laughs> Those were my questions. Okay. I thought it was fun. I just love how different... Like, you either get the judges who were the more exciting law school students who had a little more flair for writing, or the ones who are very black and white and boring people. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen Lord Denning deal with this. He's a very prolific judge out of Britain who you have to, if you go to law school, you have to read a lot of Lord Denning, but he is a delight to read because he really paints a picture with everything he talks about. It's interesting. I know nothing about law or anything except these magnificent names that they give all these cases. To be a judge and to have to base things on, like if it's never come before the court before, and then it's like the be all for all these other cases to go back to, you have to like do your homework on what you think needs to happen because then all the other cases are going to be based on it for the most part kind of all you actually have to do is if you have good lawyers arguing before you all you have to do is say which one you actually want to go with and they will have given you all the cases that you're going to cite for your ruling that's pretty crazy that it works like that that's not always how it works like a judge will come to their own ruling but I've talked to some people before and they basically say, yeah, a good lawyer should have it basically change a word or two and the documents I've submitted work as your ruling as a judge. Yeah, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to explain. <laughs> well, with that, I, I, I think that's the end of our episode today. So thank you everybody for stopping in, saying hi and listening to me ramble about the law. Sometimes it can be fun. Sometimes it is not. But this time yeah. it was fun. It was fun with the ghosts and stuff. Stay tuned for our next episode, TBA, for we have not discussed this. Again, again, TBA. Yes, but we'll see you same Journey to the Fringe time, same Journey to the Fringe channel next week, and we'll have another adventure. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. Uh, We are a new podcast, and we would very much so appreciate if you could like, subscribe, share, and if possible, provide a five-star review or some sort of feedback if you feel like there's anything we could be doing better. But five-star review is the best thing you can do for us, as it does help, unfortunately, in the world of algorithms. Yes. Please and thank you. And you can follow us on social media at Journey to the Fringe. We don't have all of them, so try searching it. Instagram, we're on Facebook. Right now we have a subreddit. And if there's anything you want to hear in the future, feedback, anything, you can email us at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. If there's something we're missing that you'd like to see us on, please let us know. 
we only know what we know. So we're only and in so many places. Also, if you feel that we have gotten anything wrong, please let us know there as well, as we would really like to have the best information possible. We are mm -hmm. only as good as our research. And if you can provide anything further, it's a real help. Or if you want to share anything, we yes. will definitely, we're open to shares. So yes, thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.